Welcome everyone to the sixth episode of season four of the Northern Spin podcast. This is One Take Wednesday. We're recording a couple of days later due to the adventures that we've been on. But this podcast has been brought to you in association with FI Real Estate Management. So my name is Michael Taylor. I'm the editor of thebusinessdesk.com. I'm a lifelong journalist and a sometime politico. But put it this way, I spent my weekend at a festival. I was sat in hot tents listening to John Major, Rachel Reeves and Michael Gove it's what I choose to do as fun and in the service of you, the listeners and viewers to this podcast. So spare a thought then for my co-host, Christopher Maguire, who describes himself as a lowercase c conservative. It's been a disastrous week for your party, Chris. It's really difficult to know even where to begin. Well, I don't want to correct you this early in the show, Michael, but uh, the Conservatives are not my party. I choose to spend my weekend playing cricket, got out to a 14-year-old on uh, Saturday, very good player as well. I'm the executive editor of Business Cloud. How many, how many hits did you get? Oh, hits, runs. I got 11. I got 11, got caught and bowled. But, it, um, yeah, that's bad, it's not, isn't it? It's not about personal glory, Michael. Uh, we got beat as a team as well. Um, okay. I'm the executive editor so of Business Cloud. collective glory either. No, it's not. But as a Blackburn fan, you'll know about uh, you know lack of success. I yeah. am still the executive editor of Business Desk and Tech Glass. There's no disputing. It's been a seismic week for the Conservatives. Actually, I don't think it's been as bad as you might make out. Um, it's got huge implications for Rishi Sunak but I've got a slightly different take and it's this Boris Pinocchio Johnson as I'm going to refer to him now is a serial liar he's an internal terrorist he's hell bent on destroying the Conservative Party from the inside he's now going to have to destroy it from the outside Johnson has this gargantuan ability and appetite to generate self-publicity. I don't want to talk about him, but we have to. His vociferous, sycophantic support base isn't very big, shouldn't be overestimated. I think he had a vision that loads of MPs like the Pied Piper were going to follow him and resign as well, which in itself is cowardly. Um, I'm glad to see Rishi Sunak banish the uh, reputation he's got as being an invertebrate by showing some backbone and finally speaking out. Um, with this in mind, I'm, uh, like I say, I'm glad he decided to over overall um, a request from Johnson Pinocchio Johnson to uh, to 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 go against the House of Lords Appointments Commission stands for HOLAC preventing more of his cronies getting in with his outrageous uh, lacking in honours honours list that's me done I'm walking out of the room thank you goodbye yeah well we've got a lot to take in there that's uh, that's a very optimistic take on behalf of the Conservative Party to say you're not uh, a member or associated with them that's a very spirited debate I, I like the name Pinocchio Johnson he is. I mean, I, at this festival I was at at the weekend. It was Chris, a kite festival in Oxford, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris Patton referred to him as a moral vacuum. And, you know, you just read all these really decent people who, if you, you know, you disagree with their politics, but essentially there's just this, this, this loathing from the, from most reasonable people. So I indeed spent the weekend at the kite festival in Oxfordshire. I spoke to Alistair Campbell. He passes on his regards and he says he will come on this podcast at some point. Usual chides about um, about our fo respective football teams as well. Yeah. Um, but I also heard from Rachel Reeves, Shadow Chancellor. More on that later on. Um, I did a I sat in on a paper review with Michael Gove and Leila Moran, the Lib Dem MP up the road in Oxford. I heard from John Major, as I said. David Badil was doing a book talk. But today I also want to talk about artificial intelligence because I feel quite intellectually naked talking about it, frankly. We need to talk about Manchester City winning the Champions League well, and therefore got, the treble. You've got a Man City cup that you're drinking your tea out of today. I am. I'm a proper bandwagon jumper yeah. with that. I was blind when I filled up my brew this morning, but it is indeed a Man City mug. Yeah, go go Blues. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also want to talk about the splurge of conspiracy theorists and we can't 
get through this podcast without doing at least one item about the Greater Manchester Metro Mayor Andy Burnham, who's agreed to come on the podcast, by the way, and his role in brokering a peace deal on the Metrolink strikes on the busiest cultural weekend in Manchester. So that's all good news. What do you want to talk about? Well, there's a big conference on um, Friday in Doncaster, which sort of got lost because of all the stuff with uh, Pinocchio Johnson, called the Northern Research Group. It's a conference for the region's Tory MPs. A lot of these MPs came to power in the 2019 general election in the Red Wall. Um, they uh, Next year, um, after the next general election, I think they'll be able to host it in a phone box. Um, they attracted some really big hitters this year. Rishi Sunak, and in fairness to him, he'd been in the US the day before meeting Joe Biden. He popped in on uh, Friday, and uh, we'll talk about about uh, his speech, what he said, and more importantly, what he didn't say. Former Chancellor George Osborne put Rosendale and Darwin MPs to Jake Berry. Briefly, uh, he was the, briefly the party chairman during Liz Truss's disastrous premiership. Um, anyway, Osborne put him in his box over the use of the word blobonomics, and we're going to talk about that. Um, also, something you may have missed, Michael, um, it's Labour's U-turn on the party's pledge to spend $28 billion a year on green technology. I think we're going to debate what makes up a U-turn. I don't think we're going to agree on this either. Not only is Labour rowing back on one of its few actual policy announcements, but Rachel Reeve recognises that the term green isn't election winner. So I think we're going to see that go in the bin as well. Something we touched on last week, but it's just gathering a lot of momentum, uh, is about Jamie Driscoll, who's been blocked from standing as a North East MP, uh, sorry, the North East Mayor. And there's growing momentum now behind Labour's preferred candidate, Kim McGuinness, who is all over Twitter as well. Well, Chris, never knowingly misinterpreted we'll talk about all of that later on time for a quick thank you though we simply couldn't do this podcast without our friends at what media who expertly produce our podcast every single week they're the kings of video content creation and they turn our weekly ramblings into the hit weekly podcast and youtube show that is northern spin they make us feel like part of the family and hopefully that comes out in this podcast and on that note we're going to go to our first interval FI Real Estate Management is not just your traditional property company. Founded in 1982 and managing assets totaling more than one billion, FI Real Estate Management pride themselves on going on the journey with their tenants. FI Real Estate Management, the property company with personality, just like us, Michael. Indeed, Chris. So we've got some exciting plans for season four of the Northern Spin podcast. If you want to join FI Real Estate Management to sponsor the show and reach a growing audience, then please get in touch with Chris or I or our friends at What Media. So my mantra, right, on this podcast, Chris, is insight, insight, insight. So we don't just want to rehash Boris Johnson stuff. I guess we can't avoid it, can we? No, we can't. So here's a quick recap of the timeline. Johnson appears before a seven-person committee, a majority of whom are Conservatives, about Partygate, right? In March, the former PM pretty much admitted misleading Parliament, but denied doing it on purpose. He was then given an advanced copy of the report, but he jumped before he was pushed and he accused the committee of being a kangaroo court and accused them of driving him out of Parliament. His resignation came hours after his own resignation honours list was published, where his closest allies, including Priti Patel, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Simon Seven Weeks Clark, and the Tees Valley Mayor, Ben Blocker-Houchen, were all recognised for their patronage, but, but not Nadine Dorries. 
Absolutely. And that's, um, that only tells half the story as well. So several other key Johnson supporters, including the aforementioned Nadine Doris, um, Sir Alok Sharma, Nigel Adams, were widely tipped to be appointed to the House of Lords. Um, certainly that's what Johnson wanted, but they weren't on the list. They weren't approved. Uh, Doris resigned on Friday, even though apparently she's not actually submitted it yet. So she's still technically an MP. While Adams, who's the MP for Selby and Ainsty, announced on Saturday that he would be resigning with immediate effect, meaning there'll be three by-elections, which let's be honest, the Tories, most definitely don't want. Now, for Doris and Adams to resign without a proper explanation, I think is cowardly. And I think it shows a complete disregard for their constituents as well. Um, as I say, we do need to talk about this, Michael. What's your take on it? Yeah, I think the whole Tory party is in a bit of a fug about the whole... It's Because it actually comes back to the whole issue of Johnson. They've been phenomenally cowardly on all of this. So... We could do what every media outlet has done and go through all the crimes of Boris Johnson in the last few weeks, but we would be committing the one thing he wants us to do, which is make him front and centre of every conversation about our politics. That's what the lying scumbag wants. And let's call him absolutely what he is. Those of us who've always known that he's a self-serving, friendless, opportunistic turd, Maybe we now realise it's time to flush that away. Yes, he's going to be annoying us all with his media presence over the next few years, with his speeches and all the rest of it. But how on earth did the Tory party of John Major, Chris Patton, Ken Clark, and dare I even say it, Margaret Thatcher, allow itself to become a hostage to the populist cult of Johnson? What did they think? would happen, allowing such a narcissistic, self-serving clown to lead their party. And I think there have to be political consequences for all of them. And I think we owe it to our listeners, people who are supposedly interested in the politics, in politics, who believe that it has to be something more than a sideshow, more than a reality TV show, to take seriously the values of accountability, honesty, and trust. Populism right? It's gripped so many different countries, Western liberal democracies, Italy being the first, of course, under Silvia Berlusconi, who's, who's recently died, Trump. And I think we've got to put Johnson into that bracket as well, right alongside people like Bolsonaro in Brazil and, uh, and, and the leader of Hungary as well. It's essentially the creed of the manipulator, convincing the manipulated to do something that isn't in their interests. So they peddle the myths that um, everyone's the same, they're all at it. And I think Johnson's actually been just making fun of the whole process. Why would he put a 20-something intern into the House of Lords? I mean, what's going on with all of that? And I think on our podcast, Chris, and I mean this most sincerely, I think we've got to up our game, not to trumpet the pathetic attack lines. And you can, someone will be listening to this and thinking, what have I just done to Boris Johnson? But I think we've got to draw a, draw a line and draw a ring around serious people and not serious people. And we owe it to ourselves to discuss serious political issues, to take ideas seriously, to move away from the yaboo to and fro of politics and interrogate how we can contribute to making things better. Boris Johnson never had a creed beyond winning power for himself. And once he was there, he had no ideas and he had a laziness and indolence and a hope that basically something would turn up and something never did. Now, I know you want to talk about the resignation honours list. I don't really, 
but I'm not going to stop. <laughs> I think that's a lovely speech, Michael, but I think you should stop sitting on a fence and say what you really mean. Um, <laughs> incidentally, I agree with every word you've said as well. I mean, Pinocchio Johnson's a disgrace. He's the worst prime minister we've ever had. Um, I'm not yeah, going to get, is, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to get into a debate about whether outgoing prime ministers should be able to reward their mates, their hangers on and their chums um, with a resignation on this. Personally, I don't think they should. I think anybody included on that list should be a social prior because uh, that shows allegiance to uh, Boris Johnson. But I think it's important we look at some of the names on that list as well. Now, Pinocchio Johnson's got this small group, and it is, I've got to emphasize this, it's a small group of noisy cheerleaders who drink from the same trough as him, espousing the same rhetoric as him, and huge swathes of the media won't call it out. I looked at Daily Mail yesterday, and um, Monday rather, and, and it was talking about uh, Nadine Doris, and it's why a working class girl from Liverpool can't uh, can't get uh, into the House of Lords. You know, it's outrageous. It's not outrageous. It's just because she's useless. And they were talking about uh, Dan Wooden as well, who's a disgrace. Um, you know, was talking about the treatment of Boris Johnson. Um, Let's look at some of the names on this list. Pretty Patel. She was a pretty rubbish Home Secretary. She spoke recently at the pro-Boris um, Johnson Conservative Democratic Organisation, the CDO in May, blamed the party's local election wipeout on the leadership, which was clearly a dig at Sunak. It was basically trying to give a free pass to Boris Johnson. She's been made a dame, right? Jacob Rees-Mogg spoke at the same event. Let's give a knighthood to Rees-Mogg. Middlesbrough MP, Simon Seven-Week-Clark, who served as Liz Truss's levelling up minister for seven weeks, hence the nickname that we've given him. He's been knighted. Teesside Mayor Ben Blocker-Houchin, whose Teesworks project, which we've spoken at length on this project, on this uh, podcast, is currently the subject of an investigation. A peerage in the House of Lords for Blocker Ben. Now, you can see a theme developing here. I've not even touched on all the gongs that you mentioned about, you know, for the litany of 20-something aides. There's something... There's nothing honourable in this honours list. Um, huge sections of the media, and I, I mentioned it before, the Daily Mail's coverage, and I work for them, has been embarrassing. It has been as culpable as the um, the idiots, the MPs who surround him. I'm going to give a um, some congratulations to Emily Maitlis, the former BBC journalist, now works at, uh, she now runs a podcast, the news agents. She was spot on in her podcast, her assessment. She said, bon uh, Johnson didn't get Brexit done. No, he, he said didn't, he did. did he? No, he That's didn't. Not, yeah. He, he, he can't take the credit for the COVID vaccine. The only reason he got an 18 majority in the 2019 general election was because he was up against Jeremy Corbyn. I could have got an 80 seat majority if I'd been up against Jeremy Corbyn. Theresa May didn't know, did she, yeah. to be fair? No, no. But Johnson's talk in 2019 was all about creating a northern powerhouse. Now, that's turned out to be as hollow as he is. Um, before we talk about, um, uh, before I talk about what that means for the Conservative Party and Rishi Sunak in particular, because it does have huge implications for them. You want to come in, don't you? Yeah. I'm, I mean, thanks for thanks for going through all of those people. I think just on, on the Ben Houchin one, you know, if he's found completely innocent and to have maybe, he's not always acted with transparency over the issues around Teesworks, but if he's found actually to have acted properly, you know, what he's achieved both politically and, you know, changing the political landscape of the northeast of England with what he's done. And he proves to be an effective mayor and Teesside Airport and the Freeport takes off. You know, in time, towards the end of his career, he's someone who quite rightly should be rewarded, you know, with a seat in the House of Lords so he can contribute to public life. But it's premature at best. But it's questionable at the moment while there's still all these inquiries going on around him and all these investigations by noble members of the media. So yeah, but Chris, give me some insight then about this Northern Research Group meeting in Doncaster, which is largely for the benefit of members of the Conservative Party's Northern MPs. They call themselves the, the NRG, 
Yeah, I think it's interesting because... There used to be a rave group called that, one for the teenagers. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a lot of teenage listeners. So this group, the NRG, they their conference last year, you remember Boris Johnson was supposed to be speaking at it. He ditched it at the last minute to go to Ukraine because the heat was being turned up on him. That again sums him up. Henry Hill of Conservative Home, who incidentally did work experience at the Chorley Guardian when I was the editor. He, <laughs> um, all, the, all the great people have touched me somewhere along the line in some connection. Um, he wrote the Johnson's hand grenade that he threw a few hours later literally killed off any you know, viable discussion about the NRG conference, which is probably another one of Johnson's aspirations when he did it. Um, I spoke to, I was going to go actually, I had a ticket, but I couldn't get there in the end. So um, I did some um, number crunching, made some phone calls and I spoke to people in the room. And um, it, I mean, Rishi Sunak, in fairness to him, like I say, he just landed, literally just landed from the US and he was committed to turning up as he you know, it says a lot. He is a Northern-based Prime Minister as well. And he's got the seat in Richmond. He gave a speech. He got a standing ovation when he walked in. He got a standing ovation when he exited. It was a very generic speech. Um, he didn't do say much for the uh, Red Wall MPs in the room who face losing their Northern seats in the next general election. Somebody said that he could have given a speech anywhere in the country and just changed the first one minute. Um, he didn't take any questions. Somebody said to me it was... Um, lacking in energy. Now, I think what the NRG conference highlighted were the divisions in the Tory party and the level of division that exists and the level of delusion that exists. So George Osborne, the former chancellor, who we've name-checked as being on manoeuvres, he he attended. They had some big hitters there. George Osborne was there? He was there, oh, yeah. Right, cool. He was there, oh, yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, and uh, he, um, it, we said he was on manoeuvres and, and he definitely is on manoeuvres. And he said the Tories can't blame the blob um, and the civil servants and the establishment for their failures, which we've said before. Um, in so many people now are blaming the intransigence of the civil service for the firing of ministers and, uh, you know, issues over Brexit. And one of the chief protagonists of that is Jake Berry. Um, and Jake Berry responded by saying, it's time to bow up blobonomics. <sighs> now, the so NHS is on its knees. I know that from personal experience. Mortgage rates are going through the roof. But Jake Berry thinks tackling the blob is an election winner. Now, over the weekend, he, he tweeted about this. He was widely rinsed on Twitter for blaming the blob for trying to block Brexit and forcing uh, out Boris Johnson. I mean, it's embarrassing. Alistair Campbell, your mate, replied by saying, you've had 13 years, you're utterly, you're utterly useless and delusional too. But Jake Berry thinks this is what's going to keep him in power. So Jake, can't. Jake, Jake Berry, the, the MP for Darwin and Rossendale, his seat must be under threat, surely. Yeah. He knows yeah. it. We've been to Darwin. I mean, it's yeah. a, it, it should be nailed on a Labour area. But um, you, anyway, um, it is. It's just populist nonsense, Chris. It's absolute nonsense. Where are the serious ideas that these these people are supposedly talking about for levelling up and transforming the North? I mean, later on, you're going to try and throw shade at me by repeating the nonsense line about Rachel Reeves, you turning on long-term green ambitions, which are still central to Labour's policy flat platform. Yet here we are, you know, Labour constantly get this accusation that there's a, that they're relying on a magic money tree, yeah? And yet here you are, you've got Tory MPs in the North wanting tax cuts, new roads, prosecuting culture wars. I mean, get real, guys. Yeah, it was interesting because Alistair Campbell's got this view that what Keir Starmer's needed to do is he's needed to... Um, 
decontaminate the Labour Party, get rid of the troublemakers, get rid of the uh, Jeremy Corbyns of the world, etc. Deal with anti-Semitism. Then he needs to get a party that's fit for government. Um, yeah, and obviously they need to prove the fact that that the Conservatives aren't fit for government. Um, and you've almost got a situation where whoever is going to be in charge, and it won't be it won't be Rishi Sunak's got to do the same with the Labour with the Conservative Party. You've got to dismantle it, or she's got to dismantle it, and they've got to rebuild it from the bottom up. You think um, the Tories have got to that stage? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think they wow. deserve to win the next general election as well. But I think they've almost got to be planning for the general election after that. Uh, and I'll give you a reason why. Right. So Nick Fletcher is the MP for Don Valley in Sheffield. So he spoke. He gave the opening address, um, and he said, so, so he's going to lose his seat, right? Yeah, yeah, he'll lose his seat. Yeah, right. I mean, but but I, I I watched his speech on YouTube. I couldn't be there, so I watched it on YouTube. It's about eight minutes. Um, I've never slept so well in all my life. Um, <laughs> you know, people talk about this heat. If you're struggling in the heat, just listen to Nick Fletcher, the MP for Don Valley. He said he told the audience at the start, and I think there was one lone clapper probably a relative, that a Conservative mayor was coming for South Yorkshire, right? Okay. A Conservative mayor was coming for South Yorkshire. Very easy to say to an audience of people who are essentially supporters. Now, the background is that uh, Nick Fletcher and the current Labour MP, Oliver Coppard, don't like each other. Nothing wrong with that. Politics is a dirty business. They've clashed over a lot of things, including the campaign to save Doncaster Sheffield Airport from closure. There was some positive news on that last week as well, incidentally. Um, now, I watched this speech, and this is one of the quotes that came out, and he was talking about elected mayor and he's basically having a shot, a pot shot at Oliver Coppard. He said, it's about getting off the Zoom and getting in the room. I kid you not, right? It's about getting off the Zoom and getting in the room. Now, I stand to be proved wrong, but there's no way that the Conservatives will win a mayoral debate and mayoral contest in South Yorkshire. It's not possible. It's fantasy politics. But Nick Fletcher thinks that he can say stuff like that and it's going to come true. And you are right that, you know, what what this what this conference was devoid in was realistic policies. It was just ideology. And that's not going to win a general election. Yeah, I think it's the false promises of Brexit as well coming back to haunt them in a lot of cases. So, um, yeah. Anyway, come on. We're a broad church on this podcast. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, I, I, and the thing is, what I try and do is, you do provide really good insight, you know, and I like to provide a bit of a roundup. No, you provide uh, good insight too. Yeah. yeah. Come no, on. No, this is now loving. This is now loving. Um, <laughs> come on. Now, Keep now, going, lad. Well, I know you want to talk about AI. And yeah, I, I might bit, need your help on this. Yeah, so, now, on. Uh, so on Monday, Sunak told London Tech Week of his plans to make Britain the global hub for safe AI and held the extraordinary possibilities of the tech. His speech, needless to say, was memorable because he had a pop shot at Johnson. Um, now, you're giving a talk today, I think, about the ethics of AI on Wednesday. Um, not AI on Wednesday. It's just the speeches on Wednesday as no, well. So yeah, I'm, I'm Where do a, you come from? I'm, I'm on a panel at an event organised by a group called Pro Manchester, with um, with a, a, a varied collection of people on the panel, most of them are tech bros. Um, AI, ter- artificial intelligence, terrifies me, if I'm honest, but it excites me as well in in ways that the information and communication revolution didn't. My hunch, my core, tells me that anything anything at all out there that is process led, rules based, and doesn't rely on dexterity and empathy is at real risk. And, you know, you think about, so so it has that opportunity for enrichment, for people to genuinely be human in the way that they they, they, they operate in their workplace. But with over half of the jobs in this country at the moment, actually, you know, don't require that level of agency and control. You know, I think we're, I think we're heading for a really, really confused time. I know you're thinking a lot about AI in recruitment and you've, you've got some events planned. 
So I, I used to recruit on gut feel, right? And personality. And I think, I think it usually served me quite well. But then I'm reflecting backwards. What about the diverse outcomes that I didn't achieve by all of that, you know? Um, maybe data tools can take you so far and a combination of that sort of emotional dexterity takes you to the other to the other end of the of the spectrum. How, you know, what what tasks are we currently doing that could be saved by, you know, bigger more, more computing power and 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 artificial intelligence? What does an what does education in AI skills involve and what does it mean and who's capable of educating anybody in something that we haven't really got to grips with yet? How do you regulate a requirement to demonstrate a responsible use of artificial intelligence? So I, I worry all the time about social media platforms, the algorithms, the, the propensity to push hate and conflict all the time. Um, so how on earth are tech companies going to be regulated when they haven't been so far under the limited AI and the algorithms that they've operated in so far? That's not gone well. And how do we create highly valuable for the public good different types of data sets? These are all the things that are swirling around in my head. I know it's massively incoherent and floating around up there, but I'm just trying to make sense of it all. I think a lot of people are trying to make sense of it as well. But if you look back through history, so when um, the manufacturers introduced automation, there were lots of concerns about it. So, you know, we're going to lose a lot of production jobs, et cetera, et cetera. What automation does is it does a lot of the jobs actually that don't require um, a uh, huge amount of skill. I'm not denigrating people who work on production lines, but it just automates routine processes and enables those people who work in those jobs mm -hmm. to maybe do more skilled roles, maybe public facing roles as well. Well, I think about typing. Yeah. Typing is a skill. You know, I, I, I took a typing course when I wanted to be a journalist earlier, earlier in my career because I realized I, I was typing with one finger. I'm not sure I type any quicker now, by the way. But, but anyway, you look at the I'm internet. Digressing. You look at the internet. You look at social media. You know, I would say, by and large, they're forces for good. But when they get weaponized, they become forces for bad. AI essentially, it could cut, it could cut through loads of tests, and I could identify out of a hundred or a thousand people, the five people are most prone to getting cancer. You can't tell me that's a bad use of technology. The problem is. AI, chat GPT, if it gets weaponized. And I'm like you, you know, you can see the benefits of it, but you're scared as well. Yeah, because the, re the recruitment thing really scares me in particular. I don't think I've ever got a job I've liked based on qualifications and, you know, applying through the metrics. I, I used to I get rejected for all sorts of jobs because I've got a very unconventional kind of career history. But every job I've got that I've liked and I've done well in, I've basically got by on personality. So <laughs> people like me are stuffed, aren't we? Now, talking about... Personality. personality. Last week, yeah. last week we mentioned Annie Burnham 533 times in the podcast. <laughs> so imagine my surprise, and I'm walking across Manchester. I'm outside uh, KPMG's offices uh, next to the line near the, near the uh, library, and who should I see having an impromptu street? Uh, well, it wasn't press actually. Conference. It was a scheduled press conference, which I'd completely forgotten to go to. Yeah, Andy Burnham was talking with Bev Craig, um, and he's been in the news, hasn't he? Because um, King Burnham has uh, basically uh, brokered a deal on the Metrolink. Well, I think it shows the power of. Uh, um, the, the office of the mayor, you know, when he was elected, um, people thought, what, are you, what a useless office. It's got no, it's got no power. It hasn't got any real legislative ability. He's just basically one of, you know, the first among equals in a cabinet of 11 and he, he being the 11th member of Greater Manchester's cabinet. But I think he's proved really the power of, of soft power and convening power. So it was an incredible weekend of music and sport in Manchester. We had the UNICEF game at Old Trafford, Man United. There was a, an artist my son Elliot went to see at the Etihad Stadium called Weekend. Um, there was the Park Life 
um, festival up in in um, in Heaton Park in, in in Bury, and I just think all this stuff going on, and yet there was a threat of a Metrolink strike. And what did Andy Burnham do? What the government have, haven't done in the train strikes is he got people to come around the table and they postponed the strikes and they put an offer on the table which the Unite Union and the Metrolink operators aren't willing to talk about, and they called off the strike. I mean that's. That's a triumph of real politics. No, I agree. No, I agree. But that sort of sums Andy Burnham up and why he's so popular in the North. Now, you spent the weekend listening to Rachel Reeves. um, Not not the whole weekend. Not the whole weekend. No, I saw your stuff on um, Twitter. Now, last week, she announced a major Labour U-turn. Well, no, she didn't, Chris. No, we'll agree to disagree, but I'm going to lay out the facts for our listeners. Right, okay. So in 2021, Labour promised to spend £28 a year on green projects funded by borrowing. Now, Reeves has wrote back on saying that won't, uh, they won't reach that £28 until after 2027. The shadow chancellor is just back from a trip to the US, which I think is really telling, actually, um, where the talk is of creating jobs through an industrial policy rather than linking it to a green prosperity plan as well. Now, I thought to myself, I thought, is this sensible politics? Is this a massive climb down? Or is this the face and the words of a very, very realistic politician? That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a, a fair summary. Um, so th- thank you for not trying to debase the intellectual um, discussion that I'd like to have about Rachel Reeves and yeah. uh, Labour's ambitions, as you quite correctly said to invest 28 billion in green energy projects by the year 2027. So in preparation for hearing us speak and being interviewed on stage at the Kite Festival by James Harding, the editor of Tortoise Media, I read a profile in the New Statesman magazine, my weekly uh, current affairs magazine of choice, which I will be passing on copies to you. Edited by Jason Cowley, who I believe you know. Yeah, I used to work with him back in the day. We used to play golf together. <laughs> Very good. About 30 years ago. He's done okay for himself since. He has, yeah. He's, he's really turned the new statesman around as well. It's, it's, a, it's a great read now. Good mix of culture and, and politics, obviously. So Jason spent a lot of time embedded with, with Rachel Reeves on her trip to the US, to New York and to Washington. And he identified two different characters, Rachel 1 and Rachel 2. Now, one of the things Alistair Campbell talked about in the um, in uh, in his talk at the Kite Festival that I saw on the Saturday, he talked about developing a campaign mindset, and he goes into a lot more detail about this in his book. But what can I do? And I really identified a lot of that in the Rachel Two that we saw on the stage at Kite, that really has got an absolute will to win. Yes, she's smart. She's well-read. She thinks a lot about economic trends, about different forces in the world, about constituents in Leeds, the the challenges that that they face in their lives. And yes, she's got a really interesting hinterland, but by God, is she focused on winning. So the Green Prosperity Plan, it's not been scrapped. She's just acknowledged that she's analysing the the economic data rigorously and she knows that if Labour wins the next election, they will inherit a far worse economic situation than they did in 1997. In fact, than they have ever inherited since 1945 when we came off the back of the Second World War. She knows too that the Labour brand was tainted by the previous reckless leadership By the way, she had absolutely nothing good to say about John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn at all. I mean, that was a steely winner's mentality. She wasn't attending an economic seminar about, you know, post-neoliberal economics. She was there 
as the future chancellor of a Labour government and she wasn't giving anything away. But she did display one of the other great attributes of good political leaders in that forum as well, is she listened. She really listened. She she mentioned people by name. She looked them in the eye when she gave the answers, which I think is always an impressive skill of politicians. She looked, She comes across as authentic. And the people asking questions, you know, they weren't, they, they weren't toffs and all. And... Um, and all the rest of it. There were teachers, care workers, people who work for charities, people who know about the harsh living conditions that many people are, are having to face. But she's ultimately very, very realistic, and it's not enough to promise uncosted solutions. So I spoke on here on this podcast last week about how she really understands the different electoral tribes. I think I talked about Mavis and Dino, didn't I? The, you did, uh, yeah. Um, Buckshaw Village. Yes. And she proved it again by talking about the Brexit vote and the division that it caused. She says, yeah, I would have voted Brexit again. But then she told this really, really interesting story about going to a warehouse in Leeds during the uh, the, the referendum campaign where people are saying, yeah, we've, lo- we've lost jobs that have been undercut to workers from Poland and the Czech Republic who are coming in and undercutting us. So she recognises the tensions that caused that and has no desire to go back to it, but does believe that we can renegotiate a much better relationship with Europe, which I think we need to talk about a bit more on this podcast. I know we're going to go to an interval, but what I would say about Rachel Reeves is that you don't read about these hatchet jobs on her, you know, where she says something which has been seized upon and then it's been weaponized against her, like, you know, Rachel Reeves has put her foot in it when she said she is a very, very canny operator. And would it be fair to say that she's similar-ish to Gordon Brown? Yeah, in some ways. I mean, she was brought Quite up. Serious. In, she was, she's serious. She was brought up in a Christian family. She's absolutely focused on winning, and and I think she's got two sides to it. And the side that you're going to everybody's going to see in public is going to is going to be the you know the very steely politician who is not going to give anything away, who's not going to slip up and make mistakes, who who can come across as quite robotic and quite focused. That's the campaign mindset. But actually, off off camera, Rachel and I both observed this while she was chatting to people before she was going on stage, and we were right at the front watching. She's got a real warmth to her and a real empathy. And, and Jason Cowley talked about this in his profile in the New Statesman about she's quite emotional as well. You know, she wells up quite a lot when she talks about people who've touched her life in different ways that have inspired her, and um, and, and and that she's actually a very warm and witty and well and well liked by people who work with her as well. We need to go on a podcast, Michael. And on that note, <laughs> there's a challenge. Let's go for our. Uh, let's go for a quick interview. So one of the businesses I'm involved in is Proactive Progress. Proactive Progress is a monthly meeting of ambitious Northwest businesses who grow through collaboration. Every month, I hit my black book. We bring in a big name speaker and share experiences, challenges, and opportunities. If you're interested in joining Proactive Progress, contact me. Lots of methods to do that, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever, or my business partner, Paul Woods. If you want to grow your business, do it through Proactive Progress.
so welcome back. This is a section that we call Anything to See Here. Now, BT Sport made Man City's Champions League final on Saturday against Inter Milan free to view. I was delighted, so I watched it. Um, political commentator and massive Arsenal fan Robert Peston tweeted, I'm thrilled that Abu Dhabi have won the first big European trophy after all these years in, for the footballing wilderness, heartwarming and global warming. City are, currently be, City are currently being investigated regards financial fair play, serious business as well. I think it's really interesting how the fact that Man City have won it, and you expect this tribal rivalry to exist in football clubs, but when Man City won it, that was this, was it jealousy? Was there some sort of legitimacy to the arguments against Man City's achievement, do you think, Michael? Yeah, I think there's a lot of je jealousy. I think there's... Uh... Um, a lot of resentment and you, you don't have to look very hard to, to find it. Uh, I don't want to take anything away from the fantastic football that Man Manchester City play or from their supporters, particularly friends of mine who were there watching them lose at York City in December 1998 and slipped into the bottom half of the third division table. But I brought this up at the Tortoise Media News meeting on Sunday at the festival. That's how I spend my weekends. Um, think, And I asked the question, what's going to happen next on all of this? And I think... I think the 115 charges that the Premier League have brought against City are serious. I think it's going to take up a lot of bandwidth at the club, but it's clearly not distracted Pep Guardiola and the team this season. I also think it's up the stakes for other oligarchs and nation states and billionaires who want to acquire a football club or, a, or any other kind of sporting interest as we've seen with the Saudi Arabian interest in extending their soft power into golf. Um, they obviously are the own Newcastle United and they want to go one step further in challenging for the title next season rather than just finishing third. The, there's, uh, there's interest in Qatar in buying up Manchester United or Spurs if the Brexit supporting Swiss resident Jim Ratcliffe, no irony intended, manages to buy Man United. So, yeah, I think the stakes are upped and I think sports washing for or whatever you want to call it is very much here to stay. I was talking to a friend of mine about who's a massive, massive Newcastle fan, and uh, and she was saying um, that I think they ended up on the last day dropping down to fourth place. But the point uh, she was making is that you know Newcastle's got this absolute. Uh, supporter base, which I would argue is probably unrivaled because of its location. And nobody talks about the um, the owners in terms of, in a negative light, in terms of their history, in terms of some well, of the think, human I rights issues. I think they do. I don't think, I don't think the, a lot of the fans who turn up at St. James's Park and pay their money no, necessarily don't. do. No. Um, but the rest of football do, and the but, rest but of the, football will. But the rest of football does, yeah, I agree. Um, and actually, it'll be fascinating to see who actually ends, ends up buying Man United, if indeed the Glazers actually sell it. And I want yeah. to talk about conspiracy theories. I could talk about a lot of conspiracy theories in relation to Man United. But I think what I'm finding with conspiracy theories is becoming much more mainstream. I remember back in the day going to Dallas and uh, the Grassy Knoll and the conspiracy theories around the assassination of um, President Kennedy. There's a new series on BBC Sounds now. Um, it's called Mariana in Conspiracy Land. It's hosted by the brilliant Mariana Spring, who has found herself being trolled simply for calling this sort of stuff out. Um, are you are you worried about the? you know, the explosion of conspiracy theories and the legitimacy that some people are giving them. Yeah, I am. Yeah. I've listened to Mariana's podcast, by the way, all of it, all 10 episodes. They're quite short and they do because they have to reset. If you listen to them one after the other in a series, you get a lot of what happened in the week before summing up. So they're quite short, but, and, um, but really, really, really interesting. She gained some real insight into why 
ordinary people get caught up in these movements. People really opened up to her, many cult survivors, it's fair to say, for, for to call them. Many um, uh, pivoted around something called the light newspaper, which I did spot, incidentally, in uh, one of my local kebab shops in Marple, <laughs> copies of this newspaper lying around. I'm going to go back and see if they're still there because, um, uh, anyway, I, I put all of this down to the growth of the politics of easy, ready-made answers in a world that seems both unfair and stacked against you, that actually it's much, much easier and much more comforting to find that the pe person responsible for that is George Soros or Bill Gates or the Illuminati or the great power elites that are controlling your life and pulling the strings. Um, no doubt we're running the risk in even questioning this and they, they do the same in the Tory party with the blob you know who is the blob you know that it's this that this it, it, this shadowy elite that, that it does encompass the media and at some point Chris no doubt we're running the risk in questioning this tosh of being labeled as being part of the problem yeah I think the problem with conspiracy theories is that they've been hijacked by people who desperately want to believe something and they're clinging to it so you've got 9-11 COVID's a classic case you're either for covid vaccines or against it you can't be either you can't have a you can't have a debate with a conspiracy theorist um that naturally creates friction that naturally creates a them and us the thing that i found most disturbing when we talk about conspiracy theories was sandy hook school shooting in 2012 26 people were shot and killed 20 of them were children age six and seven i think six adults were killed as well it was tragic as it was uh, brutal. Um, now, InfoWars host Alex Jones claimed it didn't happen. He's now been ordered, a couple of months ago, was ordered to pay one and a half billion pounds because he was shown to be, you know, wrong. It's shown to be a liar as well. Conspiracy theorists have even targeted survivors of the Manchester Arena bombing. I mean, it's completely sick. Um, well, one of the things sick. they do, and it comes out in this podcast, is that they will trot out things that they believe to be self-evidently true within their own group, as if they, they, they just believe them as fact. And one of them is, well, Mariana, you're, some guy says to her, well, Mariana, you're part of the problem, because obviously you work for the BBC, which is funded by Bill Gates, right? They, they genuinely believe that. And the brilliant thing about what she does is say, can I just stop you there? That's not true. Let me just explain what's going on here. And she will highlight the fact that the BBC, through its international development um, efforts around the world, has at times partnered with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in order to support some education initiatives in other parts of the world. But she does not, right, in BBC News or on her podcast, answer to Bill Gates in any way, shape or form and just makes it absolutely clear. And they've got no answer for that. They've got no answer for it. And again, this politics of easy answers, I think Brexit is a symptom of that. I, th I think it is a genuine worry. Yeah. I think if you want to, you won't kill off conspiracy theories, no. but if you want to get rid of a lot of them, then you need to be you need to be transparent and you need to embrace it and be honest and respond to it as well and just set the record straight. I, I do a bit of PR and I always say to people, look, you put the truth out there and let people choose and make their own mind up. And most people, most sensible people will choose the right way. The other thing with conspiracy theorists is there's a danger of we give them too much airtime yeah, you know, because yeah. there are a small minority. Um, now, something we discussed on the podcast, which I think is a worry, is the rise of politicians like Nadine Doris, who's um, 
whose conversations since she decided to resign as an MP are are, are embarrassing. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Esther McVeigh, and her husband, Philip Davis, they've all got shows on the, the likes of GB News and Talk TV. Now, until now, they've been allowed to do so because such programs are classed as current affairs rather than news. But now Ofcom is conducting research to determine whether the rules should change. Now, most of these people won't be MPs after the next general election anyway. Do you think there's anything to see here? Yeah, I think there is. I think it's interesting what Ofcom will come out with. Um, I do do think it's a worrying development. I think some of the content on some of these channels is is very dubious to say the least. But, you know, I'm, 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 I'm all for diversity in media. Mm. Absolutely. Anyway, I've got one for you. The Sunday and Telegraph newspapers are, and The Spectator have been put up for sale due to debts owed by their parent group, owned by the Barclay Brothers. Well, it's just one Barclay Brother now, mm. isn't it? Receivers Alex Partners have now taken control of the group and replaced the current owners. Anything to see here? Did you ever work for The Telegraph? No, I didn't. No, mm. I didn't. Um, it's interesting because obviously you work at um, Business Desk and I work at Business Cloud and you'll often report on uh, companies going into receivership or calling the administrators in as well. This is a sort of a technical receivership, really, because the Daily and the Sunday Telegraph and the Spectator, you know, are, are, are separate. But to the parent company has run into uh, issues. This is a big, big worry. This is the reason I want to talk about it for, because a lot of people buy papers and media things as trophy assets. So if you want to influence conversation, you might, for example, invest in GB News. And um, the Telegraph is referred to as the Tory graph. So you can see how it might appeal to somebody with deep pockets with an interest in shaping political decision making now Tory donor Lord Cruddus might tick that box just remember that Lord Cruddus was basically put into his position by uh, Pinocchio Johnson as well and um, it's also worth mentioning the Daily Mail a rumour to be interested in buying the uh, Telegraph as well that raises serious issues over competition so here we are complaining or I'm complaining about the impartiality of the Daily Mail and the fact that they are a, a stain on democracy with the rhetoric that they paddle out but they're now looking to buy the Daily and the Sunday Telegraph now all that does is it weakens the fabric of the society that we live in that's why it's a worry yeah definitely yeah very very good point and good insight there in the the way that newspapers work so who have we got on maneuvers this week well apart from the one he who should not be named the blonde the blonde bomb site anyone connected to pinocchio um, is on manoeuvres, but uh, we've spent enough time talking about uh, about them. So I'm going to provide some insight now. So last week, we discussed how Jamie Driscoll was being excluded from the North East mayoral race. Um, that's by the Labour Party. Yeah, by yeah. the Labour Party. That's come right from the top, from Sir Keir Starmer. Apparently, his decision to appear on stage with filmmaker Ken Loach in March is thought to have played a part. He has uh, had, uh, he's been accused of having anti-Semitic views. Now, a lot of people think this decision to part Jamie Driscoll is really uh, an attempt to open the way for Kim McGuinness, who is the current Northumbria Police and Crime Commissioner, to win. A lot of people think it's going to be a coronation. So Driscoll, who is the north of time there, has gone on manoeuvres in a big way. He's on overdrive on Twitter, putting his case forward, claims he's being, quote, taken out by the Labour Party. He claimed the Ken Loach stuff is a smokescreen. He's retweeted countless messages of support. Now, The Guardian described Driscoll as the last Corbyn Easter in power. I'm told, good authority, he doesn't like that description, incidentally. He told you that himself, didn't he? Um, he told me that. Um, what did I say? <laughs> no, but somebody else told me that. I mean, I'm not just saying I have it on good authority no, you, and I'm talking about me. But, but yeah, what, yeah. But when you spoke to him, yeah. he said, you know, the Corbynista thing's a bit yeah. harsh and there's more to me than just that. Didn't yeah, it? yeah. But, 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 but other people have told me subsequently that the Guardian's tagline of the last Corbynista in power, he hates it. Um, <laughs> at the same time, Kim McGuinness has been 
she's on manoeuvres. She's been all over Twitter tweeting various supportive messages. There's a photo at the weekend at the Sam Fender concert at St. James's Park. Now, I spoke to a couple of people and this is the thing. The Labour hierarchy, this isn't something that's happened in the last like 10 days. Yes, the Driscoll thing has. But if you throw it back a bit further, the Labour Party have been supporting Kim McGuinness in a big way for a long time. Um, they've, uh, they've appeared at events that don't appear to have much to do with her role as a police and crime commissioner and uh, at various businesses as well. Um, I mean, I looked on uh, YouTube. She met Sir Keir Starmer in 2021 during a visit to the community project in Northumberland that was affected by, you might remember it, Storm Arwen as well. And it's just that, and this is clearly, she's not jumping into the debate on Jamie Driscoll. And Jamie Driscoll seems to have avoided mentioning her by name as well. But you can see that Kim McGuinness is on manoeuvres, Jamie Driscoll's on manoeuvres, and I would argue as well, Labour are on manoeuvres as well. What do you think? Yeah, I, thought, I think you've summed it up very well. I can't really add anything to that. Um, and I think clearly she's um, Kim McGuinness is um, Starmer's candidate to be the North East Mayor. Who do you think? Who else do you think is on manoeuvres? Well, I want to brief, briefly mention the Lib Dems. So this is my attempt to not be completely partisanally Labour in everything that I say on this podcast. And um, what they're trying to claim is that they're in pole position from a third place finish in 2019, interestingly, in mid-Bedfordshire, Nadine Doris's constituency. And they're out there looking for local grievances for them to point at and come up with dubious bar charts. Um, but I did like something that Ed Davey said recently. So in, my, in the course of me reporting on business stories for the business desk and looking at stock exchange announcements and results announcements all day, every day for the business desk, I come across co consistently retailers and big food companies who are doing quite well, right? better than they should be doing when we're in an inflationary situation. We've seen recently the petrol stations business, EG Group, and you know that it's which they also that the owners also own Asda, right? They're doing really well. Ed Davy has said there needs to be a competition and markets authority investigation into big food businesses, petrol companies, supermarkets, for the outrageous greed they are inflicting on us that is actually contributing to inflation. Raw material costs are being passed on and we're all paying for it. The profits from all of those things are way in excess of what you'd expect. So it's not inflation that the economy is suffering from at the moment, despite what the Bank of England are saying, that they've got great concerns about wage inflation. Actually, the biggest, biggest shift in wealth from one group to another is from consumers to the shareholders of these companies. In turn, they're using those excessive profits that they're making off the back of um, uh, uh, of the British consumer to buy back shares. Tesco have bought back 1.8 billion in shares since October 2021. Shell using 4 billion of its 9 billion pound profit to buy back shares. Record dividend payments of 94 billion pounds across the economy in 2022. And Ed David, the Lib Dem leader, has called for a C. Uh, CMA, Competition and Markets Authority, investigation into big food and big retail, which would stop this overnight. So it might not meet my usual strict criteria for being a non-manoeuvres test, but I did want to mention it. And it's really drawing some clear water between the Lib Dems and Labour who desperately don't want to upset big big business. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think um, I think Ed Davy. I think it's a good move by Ed Davy because he struggles to get any airtime. I mean, we don't mention Lib Dems very often, um, but he's he's struggling to to be not to be not to be taken seriously. He also knows, of course, that you know the Lib Dems have got much better chances in by elections than they have in general elections as well. And there's three coming up yeah. in in quick succession. It was interesting because about ten days ago there was a story that was floated on a Sunday in which it said that the Conservatives were talking to the retailers uh, and asking them to sort of peg prices to try and curb inflation but I went to the uh, I went to Asda this is insight I went to Sainsbury's I bought some ham like 10 slices of ham the one that I've always bought not not gammon Chris no 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 £4.50 <laughs> £4.50 and I just thought to myself wow because my wife was away um, and she didn't normally trust me with the uh, the shopping you know how to treat yourself absolutely you? I do absolutely and on that note uh, we're going to go for a quick interval I've always believed that a vibrant media sits at the heart of any community and the business community is no different. So if you're in business, then the businessdesk.com is for you. We're up with the lark every morning to bring you the day's business news. We have regular events, credible news, and lots and lots of other events to bring people in the business community together. So log on now, thebusinessdesk.com for all your regional news. Welcome back to part three of the Northern Spin podcast. We call this the, th- the fun bit, don't we, Chris? We do, yeah, yeah. And I know we want to pay tribute to a journalist that we both admire. Yeah, the thing about the podcast Northern Spin is an opportunity for us to talk about things that are important to us as well and uh, things that vex us, things that concern us as well. We're passionate about doing things for the North. Guardian journalist David Conn is a wonderful journalist. Um, he doesn't, doesn't court publicity. He won the Paul Foot Award for Investigative Journalism for his report on Michel Moan's use of the government's VIP lane to provide PPE during the COVID pandemic. Um, back in December 2022, Moan announced he was taking a leave of absence from the House of Lords. I think uh, one of the planks of his investigation was that £30 million worth of profits were given to uh, Michelle Moan's kids. Um, I think it's fascinating, actually, to, to, so congratulations to David, but it's fascinating to see the speed at which that case seems to be progressing, not compared to the one against Nicholas Sturgeon, who was arrested by Police Scotland on Sunday, who are investigating allegations that more than 600 grand in donations for an independent campaign were misspent by the SNP. She she has vehemently protested her innocence as well. What do you think? Because you know David Conn, don't you? I do. David used to write a column for, for me when I edited a magazine and... We called it David Conn Investigates, and he, he, he turned up some great stuff. I've known him a long time. Really, really good journalist, really decent guy. Incidentally, if anyone wants to listen to, to more of the coverage of the award that he won, the Paul Foot Journalism Award, the Private Eye podcast, they've done a little series on it. Was it called Page 98 or something like that? Mm-hmm. It's really good. They, they've got interviews with all the journalists who were shortlisted for those awards, and it, it's really, really insightful. What, what really shocks me, though, is, as you said, Chris, is how they seem to have got away with it. Anyway, before I ask you what you've been up to, Chris, I want to mention my visit to the Kite Festival in in um, in Oxfordshire at the weekend. Did you did you go to the Kite Festival at the weekend? I did. Oh, right. I did. I'm using it to provide insights. Okay. Stop throwing shade at me. <laughs> it was like the Hay Book Festival during the day. So by day, we listened to talks and interviews from people as diverse as Michael Gove, 
right? I was that far, I was this far away yeah. from Michael Gove. Yeah. He touched Tem- more, didn't he? Tempting though it was. Anyway, uh, Sir John Major, Simon Sinek. How do you pronounce his name? Sinek? Sinek, yeah. He's, yeah. he's um, yeah. incredible. Really yeah. amazing insights. Susanna Hoffs, have you heard of her? I've heard of everyone except for Susanna Hoffs. Susanna Hoffs was the lead singer in an 80s pop band called The Bangles, who oh. rose to, to particular popularity with their single Walk Like an Egyptian. She was briefly in a relationship with Prince who wrote the song Manic Monday, for which she also achieved you know, chart-topping hits. What's really and she sad. performed that that song and Eternal Flame with an acoustic guitar to people at the... But she's written a novel. Which what's really sad is people listening to this as opposed to watching us on a YouTube channel will think you're reading that out because, I, I, because not. you've not. I'm you're not. not. No. Um, okay. Eternal Flame, Eternal Flame, one of my particular favourites. And I always thought she oh, was talking know. to me. I always thought she was... Well, I know of her now, but I didn't yeah, yeah. recognise her name. And of course, Alistair Campbell, who Rachel and I met. And he he, he signed us a copy of his book with a reference to our uh, to my football team, using yeah. a swear word. But yeah. that's, uh, <laughs> that's how we roll. He's a big Bernie fan and you're but, a big Blackburn fan. But here's the thing. So... They're just the ones that I got to see. The thing about going to a festival is it's all the ones that you missed as well. So we missed seeing Chris Patton, the author Elizabeth Day, who we both really, really like. Um, another former insider colleague, Louise Tickle, and she's um, she was there as well. She's doing some amazing work and has recently written a book. She's done some really fantastic investigative journalism for Tortoise and The Guardian about how the family courts work. And a, a real surprise, which I think would have been great fun to watch, but there was something else we wanted to see, Joan Collins. You've heard of her, presumably. I have heard of her. Yeah, She's in her 80s now, hasn't she? Uh, incredible. Very elegant. Yeah. Anyway, the whole thing obviously works. And a lot of the people there have clearly got a book to plug, which is fine because it gives them something urgent to say. And, and it makes you then want to go along to the Blackwell's tent on the festival site to buy a copy. So we always come home with far more than we go with. It obviously works because Alistair Campbell sold out his book and the shot wished that they'd stopped more. I told Alistair this afterwards and he texted back saying, failures of capitalism. Yeah. Um, you get to meet loads of people as well who are just wandering about and you stop and have a chat and they all seem fairly pleased to see you or at least meet people. We met um, Nihal off the radio, off Radio 5 Live. I thought he was a lovely, lovely guy. He interviews people on Radio 5 Live and he's very, very good at it. Big Tottenham fan. Yeah, he is. Same with a guy called Alexi Mostris, who makes what he calls WTF podcasts. Do you know what that means? Yes, I do. Yeah, do. yeah. I'm okay. not stupid, Michael. Right. I know, but you don't like swearing, so yeah, I'm trying know, to tempt yeah. you into it. Um, but they're shocking gotchas with real twists and some proper real-life nutters. I get a buzz off podcasts like that. Um, Nihal apparently only lives a few miles from me in Stockport. So hopefully I'll bump into him again soon. We know people in common, which you're, is great. Got, you're, you're, you're referring to everybody by their first name terms, like your best mates with them now. Like Alistair. It's, it's Alistair now. Alistair Campbell. Well, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. Anyway, we ate Tibetan curry, Indian rolls, bagels, all manner of artisanal gorgeousness. And I slapped on the Factor 30 as well in searing English summer heat. By night, we saw some amazing music, we, but most of whom were, of course, um, older, musical, wonderful women. Candy Statton, heard of her? Heard of her, yeah. You have, huh? Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, right. no, I have, I have. Chrissy Hind, Heard of her. Right. Alison Goldfrapp. Yeah, I don't recognise her name. Yeah, okay. And Susanna Hoffman. Yeah, she was in the Bangles, actually, and she once briefly went out with Prince, I think, if I recall. All of that, Chris, made for a wonderful weekend, and I've already put in my diary to go to the festival next year in June at Curlington Park in Oxfordshire. 
it surely beats a night out of the Chorley Harvester, eh? Well, two things. One, you underestimate the pulling power of the free salad at the Harvester. But uh, me and my wife are now going to a garden centre for breakfast. A garden centre. Yeah, yeah. I want, I want to talk about a business we both know, Timson Group. So last week they reported record profits of over 40 million quid, turnover of 297 million. That's for a 43, uh, sorry, a 53-week period. Um, now, by good fortune, their CEO, James Timpson, agreed to speak at the June meeting of Proactive Progress, which is a, um, a networking business group that I co-host. Now, Jane famously pioneered the company's recruitment of ex-prisoners to the extent that one in nine of Timson's colleagues, he hates the word staff, so we don't use that word, colleagues, are now prison leavers. Now, James was talking to a guy called Anthony, and they were having a coffee before he came in to speak to us. And uh, he said, you need to get Anthony into your group. I said, absolutely. I said, um, tell me a bit about him. He said, he can introduce himself. Don't worry. So Anthony, who is about 46-ish, quite a slightly built man, sits down between me and James Timpson. He says, hello, my name is Anthony. I served 18 years in prison for murder. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I've I've interviewed thousands of people over the years, and this is somebody I knew nothing about beforehand, and I'm actually uh, a fan of True Crime Podcast as well. Um, and I, I listened to that, and then I heard his background story, and I heard the way James Timpson spoke about it, and I said to uh, James Timpson, I said, do you think about, you know, about, about the crime itself. Do you think about that side of things? You think about Anthony's history. He said, I think about what they've done since. And he's just a measure of the man. It was just so incredibly powerful. Um, yeah, and you, you met him as well, haven't you? Yeah, I went to prison with James, which is often a conversation yeah. tactic I use and pause at the end of that sentence. No, he took me into the workshops that Timpson have inside Forest Bank Prison in Salford, which I don't believe they've got anymore. It's a really tough prison. And he taught me through the work they do, helping ex-offenders like you. He introduced me and encouraged me to talk to these guys. And, you know, they, they, they would throw a lot of banter at him and he because he was there in a powder blue suit and he's a real charismatic character. It is such an impressive business run on such sound values. Yeah. Good. Um, that sounded great. No, it did. It did. Yeah. I've got some um, TV podcast recommendations for Ooh. you as well and book recommendations. This is the bit when I try and sound a bit, uh, you know, really intellectual. So um, I finished Vincent, which is uh, with Ray Winston on ITVX. That was filmed in Manchester in 2005. This is about me getting more northern as well. So I watched that. Finally finished the you book. You want to get more northern watching something with Ray Winston. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Absolutely. I finished the book Money Men by Dan McCrum, who's the investigative yeah. journalist at the Financial Times. We mentioned it a few weeks ago because yeah. he got involved in a real dust up um, yeah. with, uh, well, he didn't necessarily, but um, THG's Matt Moulding wrote a LinkedIn blog in oh, which he, they had a he called out um, No, it was FT. a proper to and fro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you enjoy the book? Well, the problem is Dan McCrum, who's a brilliant journalist, is not a brilliant narrator. So he narrated his own books, listened to it on Audible. And um, so I didn't enjoy that aspect of it, but the actual investigation was really good. The thing is, I was asked a comment. Somebody said, what's your take on THG's dust up with the FT? And the first thing I did is I watched Scandal, which is a uh, Netflix film on the Wirecard demise. And then I read this book by Dan McCrum. So I feel much more, I feel much more equipped now to discuss it. I think, I think Matt Moulding is playing with fire by going after the FT and Dan McCrum, but also think the FT have got to be really careful um, in terms of what they put out as well. So uh, think, really I think, interesting. I think they are. Yeah. Uh, two top tips for our listeners old and new so on TV I stumbled across because my wife's been away for a few days so I basically had the TV to control to myself um, and I watched The Night Manager starring Tom Hiddleston Hugh Laurie Olivia Coleman 
absolutely brilliant. I watched four episodes straight. I went to bed at midnight. I started watching at eight, went to bed at midnight, which is quite late for me, yeah. incidentally. I think Elizabeth Debecki's really good in that as well. Uh, Australian yeah. actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There wasn't a poor performance in it. I think yeah. it was 2016, but an absolutely, if you've not watched it. Tom Holland is in it as well, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, Tom Corky. Holland. Tom Holland is 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 probably steals the show. They're just fantastic. I've got two more episodes to watch of that. Now, Ooh. in terms of podcast, I binge listened to um, Scamander. Now, this focuses on a young American woman called Amanda C. Riley who starts blogging in 2012 um, about having Hodgkin's lymphoma. But then you quickly get onto the point, has she really got cancer? And is she attracting money from well-wishers under false pretenses as well? It's quite a formulaic sort of um, approach to podcasts. And I'll be honest, I think I'm on episode six now and it could have been summarized into three, but it is it is worth listening to. I'm quite enjoying that one. Brilliant. So we we came back from Kite Festival. Did I mention that I've been to that? You, yeah. you mentioned it about nine times, actually. Yeah, um, with a stack of books. So mm. we'll get around to reviewing them on here at some point, starting with Alistair Campbell's book, So What Can I Do? It's quite depressing reading at the moment, actually, because it's kind of talking about the symptoms before it talks about, you know, potentially the solutions and the cures. So it's quite hard going. And I'm sort of reading it in parallel with reading... Lisa Nandy's book as well, which again is quite similar, painting quite a bleak picture before you get to the optimistic bit. I struggle to read books simultaneously. I mean, as I mentioned before, I, I do it on Audible, but I tend to have to stick with one book. But anyway, so you've enjoyed the podcast this week. You enjoyed it? Yeah, it's, it's been right? good fun. Yeah, yeah it's good. been good fun. Right. So that's all for episode six of season four of the Northern Spin podcast. If you want to join FI Real Estate Management and sponsor the podcast, get in touch. We're on Apple Podcasts, so please review us. Don't forget to press the subscribe button. Follow us on Twitter at Northern underscore spin one or watch us on YouTube. Thank you, as ever, to all our friends at What Media for recording this podcast. Including and Abby. Including Abby, the boss who's in here today, which is why we're on our best behavior. Thank you to uh, Elliot Taylor for providing the music. My name is Michael Taylor. And my name, as always, is Happy Clappy, the Banter King of Kent, Chris McGuire.